Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. My guest today is an exceptional businesswoman, a serial investor and a serial software entrepreneur. She founded three tech companies in the US and Europe, and according to Bilanz, she's one of the 100 Swiss digital shapers of 2020. Once named Immigrant Entrepreneur of the Year in the US, she has received other numerous awards and recognitions to include World Economic Forum, Young Global Leader, Royal Next Generation Award, and the Boston Business Journal's 40 Under 40 Award. Oh, and by the way, she's a lion, Anna Leuven, on the hit TV show, Die Höhle der Leuven, Switzerland's answer to the US Shark Tank and the UK's Dragon's Den. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. Axia is a leading private cloud platform in the Atlassian and Matimos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Women Way, the business network and mentoring platform for professional women, is one of Switzerland's largest women's business networks. It connects 15,000 female entrepreneurs and women in professional leadership positions. Board members and executives make up 43% of Women Way's community. Since 2009, Women Way has been a community of women leading the way. Visit us at www.womenway.org or follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Essentially Lily, as naturally as you. The owner Lily uses her personal experience and holistic education to create the range of skincare products. The Swiss brand focuses on resolving skincare concerns like eczema, acne and psoriasis. The products are made with love using only 100% all naturally sourced ingredients. Get your confidence today. www.essentiallily.com Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Bettina Heim is the founder and CEO of the digital company Julie Health. We will get into that in the course of this discussion. She's also the founder of Pixability, a US-based video advertising company that helps brands transform their video marketing and advertisers optimize their campaigns on channels like YouTube. Pixability's customers now include top media agencies and brands such as Harvest Media, Interpublic Group, Omnicom and Group M, as well as Swatch, Bose, L'Oreal, Ford and Puma. It employs 100 people and Bettina is now on the board of directors. Prior to Pixability, Bettina co-founded Swox, the Swiss-based speech technology company, which 11 years later was acquired by Nuance Communications for $125 million. Bettina holds two software patents and is a co-author of the book Video Marketing for Dummies. What else does she do? Oh yes, put out fires, but that's a private joke. In this episode of Heads Talk, we will dive deep into the world of entrepreneurship. We will look at their characteristics, analyze head over heart and vice versa. And we will touch upon investors, what they're looking for and what are the opportunities. 
So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Bettina to Heads Talk. Delighted to touch base with you again and happy to have you here today. Thank you, Elaine, for having me. That's great. Let's dive into the, the questions. The theme of this episode is all about entrepreneurs and their journey. So the first thing I'd like to talk about uh, and ask you is, how did you get into this life, this world of entrepreneurship? Was it an accident, a planned strategy, or even forced upon you? Tell us your journey, Bettina. I actually pretty much have entrepreneurship in my blood. Um, we in our family are quite the entrepreneurial bunch. My four grandparents were all entrepreneurs in their own right. My grandmother had her own pharmacy, the other grandmother her own corner store. My grandfather, one of them was an inventor um, and a chemist, and the other one was a coal wholesaler after he started in the mine as a coal miner when he was 15. So, um, and my parents are uh, both also self-employed um, as a pharmacist and as a doctor. And so I didn't really know what a nine to five job was growing up. Um, I always knew that I wanted to go into business and I thought that I would have to kind of work my way up, get lots of experience and then become an entrepreneur. And I also didn't quite know the route to entrepreneurship. So when I was in college, I founded uh, a student initiative that is almost 25 years old now called START at the University of St. Gallen, mm -hmm. uh, which has turned into uh, Europe's largest student organized entrepreneurship conference. And they, um, you know, teach entrepreneurship. So I did that as a self-help thing. And when I finished that, some of my um, colleagues from university said, hey, you've got to walk your talk. And they hooked me up with a startup from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology right after I graduated from grad school. And I've never had a real job. I've been an entrepreneur ever since. Mm, you've never looked back. <laughs> okay. So that's it. it was kind of automatic, so to speak. It was it was inevitable based on what you just told me. Um, as mentioned in the introduction, you are a serial entrepreneur. Um, let's talk about the the characteristics and traits in that area. Give my listeners um, three main traits needed to to embark on this journey that you couldn't do without. Ideally, not the obvious ones like commitment and tenacity, but three unexpected traits um, you have acquired or already have. Or within you, or you believe a must to survive and thrive in, in this option? There are a lot of journeys to entrepreneurship, right? It doesn't have to be the one I took. And I'm really of the firm opinion that anyone become, can become an entrepreneur, especially if you have these three characteristics that I always talk about. Um, the first one is naivete. If you knew what you were getting yourself into, you probably wouldn't do it because it is a hard road um, on one hand. And on the other hand, entrepreneurship has to do with disruption, creative destruction, 
and it is all about creating new things that are, you know, that other people don't see. And for that, you need to have fresh eyes. Um, so naivete is really important. The second one is chutzpah. Um, do you know that word? Yeah, um, yeah, cheek and brazenness, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Yiddish word that is sort of audacity, boldness. It's like it's, cheek, isn't it? Yes, it's the willingness to put yourself out there and say, hey, follow me. I want you to believe in this here. Um, mm. Even if you're not completely sure yourself, right? You have to have the guts to, to say, this is my vision. Help me realize my vision. And the third one is perseverance. It's a lot of ups and downs. Um, you ride the proverbial entrepreneurial roller coaster every day. Uh, there are ups and downs at the beginning, especially after that, the amplitudes become um, a little bit lower. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's really important that you don't expect to get rich within 18 months. That's very rare, right? There are instances of that. And people always see those like, you know, Instagram, 18 months, yeah. $1 billion. Mm. That is not the reality of it. So if you're planning on an entrepreneurial journey, you have to look at five to 10 years at least mm -hmm. for it. And, um, and you have to choose something that you will go through and that you're passionate enough about not to earn money or any substantial amount of money for a long time. Right. Okay. There's almost, you need to have the love for it before the yeah. money. Um, to, to, to continue with what you were, you were just saying, I, I did an interview with a um, successful serial and veteran entrepreneur who now helps startups. He said something quite interesting. He can tell from those starting out who will succeed and who will not. There is always, and he puts it, one person, just that one person in a startup organization or group that you know, you sense will succeed. I'm assuming you are the same. What is it? What is it that you are seeing that the rest of us probably would not even notice? The stick with itness. Mm -hmm. You have to you have to be so determined um, to make something succeed and you have to be all in. You don't, you shouldn't think about, is this great for my career? Mm. Uh, am I going to fail and my family will hate me forever? You have to, it's hard to say, you have to burn those bridges behind you, <laughs> right? If you had a way back, um, a lot of people would choose that. So you really have to commit yourself um, and, you know, not immediately, but you have to give notice at your job. You have to put some of your own money in if you have it. Um, just people that, I call it, that employ commitment devices. Mm -hmm. um, people that are really say, okay, 
I am putting all of these eggs in the basket and they're almost all of my eggs. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I think that is the quality. You have to have this maniacal focus on making it work. That's quite scary though. I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking that's quite scary to have to sort of put the all or nothing sort of attitude towards things. But no, that's, that's interesting. Let's move on. In the introduction, I, I briefly talked about the fact that you have founded three tech companies. Um, your recent new venture is Julie Health. This must be quite exciting for you, the newborn, so to speak. Um, please tell my listeners about this. How was it founded? What is it about? Um, where can people find out more about this? So Julie Health is my third software company. And um, usually my, my companies come from something I've experienced plus my observations about a market. And um, Julie is an app that helps people manage their chronic conditions. When you are diagnosed with a chronic condition, you often feel a loss of control. You don't know all the factors that influence it and you spend time searching. And that was true for me. I was not even diagnosed yet. This was after uh, my first child was born and I couldn't sleep anymore. And I was like, I didn't know what it could be. Um, I went to my doctor and he said, ah, you're probably just stressed, but I can't give you anything um, because you're breastfeeding. And I did that twice and I almost went insane. I was the CEO of a fast growing startup. I had a preemie baby and I couldn't sleep. The slightest thing woke me up at night. So I started to figure out, I wore the sleep monitor headband. I started writing down what was going on. And, and with that, I sort of hacked my own health and figured out what I needed to do and got myself well again. Mm. Um, and it turns out like, you know, two years later or something, I was, after I was well again, after the fact diagnosed with an atypical postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. So I, this, and uh, you know, I've had since then uh, other health issues and every time I'm like trying to figure out what is triggering this. Is it my thyroid level? Is it my vitamin D level? Is it my sleep? Is it, you know, the sunlight hours? Is it some sort of travel thing I'm doing? It's very hard to know that. And so I came up with the idea to have an app that brings all of this data together because we have it, right? We have our digital mm -hmm. scale. We have our lab results from our doctors. We have our screen time. We have how we're moving around. We have the weather but I could not find anything on the market. And I searched really, because I was desperate to figure mm -hmm. out what was wrong with me. I searched, I couldn't find anything. So that's how I came up with Julie Health. And um, right now we are in closed beta. So you can go to our website. Mm -hmm. It's at juli.co, julie.co. And you can sign up to be a beta tester and 
uh, within the next few months will be available uh, on iPhone and on Android. And you can sign up and take a look and help us develop this app and you know get better. Mm -hmm. Join us on our journey and help yourself on the journey to better health. Okay, um, I think what we'll do, we'll put a link to julie.co if you're happy with that on the episode description so that people um, listening to the podcast can pick it up from there quite quickly. Um, Thank you. Right, no worries. Um, now you founded companies in two different continents, the US and Europe. You're insatiable, actually. Um, let's do a small comparison. Um, did you find it easy to start a tech company in the US or in Europe? Perhaps let's look at regulatory issues, culture, ease of access of things, etc. Um, what were the pitfalls of one um, and what were the advantages of the other? So I have spent more than a third of my life in the United States and I've spent about a third in Germany and a third in Switzerland. So I really grew up uh, between these cultures. I moved to Switzerland when I was 19, mm -hmm. then went to the United States when I was 32. So I have a little bit of that cross-cultural knowledge sort of built into my DNA. But I found it quite different to found companies uh, on the two continents. Um, in Europe, people have really very deep tech expertise. There's a lot of good technology coming out of universities. My first company was a text-to-speech software company, and we were spun out of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. Mm -hmm. It was one of the top five centers in the world that could create this technology back then. Um, today, it's almost ubiquitous everywhere and people are employing it. Um, the software that my team and I created back then is in all Android phones. Um, we thought it would go a lot quicker, but, um, but we did succeed with that. Um, but from the start, Swiss startups especially need to be international in nature. We had a real advantage because our technical heads, Christoph Taba, who was uh, the visionary behind that, already knew that he would have to build into the basic version of this technology, would have to build in multilinguality. Mm -hmm. um, because of Switzerland, you know, it's in the country inherently, yes. so people always think about it. And that was a real advantage for us. We had a huge technological advantage because we could roll out new languages within two or three months, whereas others needed two mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. So that was a real advantage for what was a very small company. And we didn't raise a lot of money. We raised only $8 million for the company. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was amazing. Um, that said, people are a lot more conservative. They want to join organizations that are relatively well-financed. And um, also in Europe, there is, um, let's say, less of an intuition around marketing. 
it's not just about the great technology. It's about how you address your target audience, your target market, and how you package up the whole thing. Is it, are you communicating it correctly? Are you packaging it up with the pricing? Do you have the right, let's say, signals in the industry that you are a top player? Um, and, and that hampered us a bit. So when I started my second company, um, I went first for a mid-career master's to MIT. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to play in the big leagues. I knew that I wanted to learn that. And so <laughs> what did I do? I founded a marketing and advertising technology company. It wasn't originally intended as that, but it was, it was something that was in the air video was coming up and I wanted to learn that. And I went through a really good school in um, learning how to do that by watching companies that were built in the same building like mine, um, like HubSpot, which is a multi-billion dollar company uh, to date. And um, what I found in the United States, that people are more open that they are willing to give you the benefit of the doubt, um, but they also BS you a little bit more. Mm. So, you know, they'll say it's great when they actually think, uh, that's, that will never work. So, um, so that's a difference. Um, another difference is that people are a little bit less re reliable. They're more flaky. Um, if they tell you they're going to do something, you really have to follow up. In Switzerland, if you say, you know, we're recording this right now, if I tell you we're gonna meet in three and a half months on a Tuesday at 11 a.m., I don't need to reconfirm with you in Switzerland. But in the US, I have to follow up twice to make sure, like a week beforehand and then, you know, a day beforehand, is this still a good time? because people will often cancel on you and you're already on a plane or on a train or somewhere to get to them and they'll cancel on you at the last minute because some other great opportunity came up. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that is irks me to this day that that happens, mm -hmm. but you can actually differentiate yourself uh, in you know, the wide field of competition in the US if you, if you are reliable and you, uh, hold yourself and your employees to their promises. Another thing that's in the United States that was great for me was that there are many more female tech entrepreneurs, um, at least when you know I started. Mm -hmm. In Switzerland at the time, in my first startup, I did not know a single other female tech entrepreneur. And then I came to Boston in 2006 and I discovered there were a lot there and there were ones that had already taken companies public, really scaled to large M&A events. And I went to those women and said, hey, can you help me? I wanna talk and I found awesome mentors and I also founded a networking group for uh, female entrepreneurs called the CEOs. And that was, that was really very valuable to me, especially as I was also embarking on my journey in motherhood, 
And um, it was just great to have this group of people that were supporting you and that, you know, didn't guilt you for being the CEO of a really strong growing company and still having two kids. Um, so that was, that was amazing for me. And I really don't want to miss that. Mm -hmm. Do you think now we have enough Swiss women techs? Um, startup individuals that you can actually create a CEO group in Switzerland? Yes, I think I could. Um, it's, you know, it's still not enough. It's not enough in the US and it's not enough in Europe. I mean, if you look at it, somewhere between three and 10%, depending on the year of venture capital in the United States are invested in female founded companies. Yeah. Um, and in Europe, it's even less. But there's a lot more awareness for it and a lot of people are trying harder to get more female investors partners into mm -hmm. VC firms there's a lot more awareness for um, women but also uh, people of, of color and mm -hmm. other minorities mm -hmm. coming into this field and understanding that you need to be an ally to these underrepresented groups and and i think that's really that encourages me and I do my part to to help that process. Do you think there's almost a clear divide on the on the investor side of things in terms of the U.S. investors compared to those of the European investors in terms of how willing and open they are to invest to mentor? What do you think? No, I don't think so. I think there's really been a lot of learning going on. Um, Yes, it's still a little bit less sophisticated because VC firms have been around yep. since the 1970s mm -hmm. uh, in Silicon Valley. So it's, you know, it's not something new, right? They're as old as, as I am. And in Europe, most of them are not older than, yeah. you know, 20 years or so. So, um, and they, there were very few when I started with my first company in, in 2001 and now there are a lot more and they've really learned it from examples so there there's really it's been a step change i came back uh, from the u.s after having been there yeah. 12 for 12 years two years ago and um it is a market difference Oh, but it's getting there. It's getting there. That's, that's what I'm taking yeah. away. Yeah, it's, it's a market difference from 2006. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm very pleased on, on what's happening. Mm -hmm. There is still more, there's more room to grow, especially um, it's hard to find serial entrepreneurs or serial executives in startups that have scaled companies yeah. uh, to a certain level. You know, I lived in Boston and you could find for any discipline, be it marketing, be it sales, be it tech, be it product yeah. management, all of those, you could find people that had done it before. Throw a ball, you'll hit one. Yes, exactly. Okay, okay. Let's, let's move on. Um, this is an interesting one. Um, we've all seen them. There are these entrepreneurs that are quite forceful, you know, very one-sided, perhaps one-dimensional. And, are constantly in your face or in your digital space. They bombard you with their offers. They're constantly sending emails and are forever advertising in various social media groups you belong to. 
Um, yes, you need the, the drive to succeed. You need to be a little forceful, but let's be frank here. This can be very annoying and will probably put off investors, buyers and customers. How does an entrepreneur balance the pitch with the personal space? Depends on who you're talking to. Um, if you're talking to European founders, like I'm, I will say, look, you're probably not doing enough yet. Um, <laughs> um, because you know that there's still this hesitancy to market yourself and mm -hmm. put yourself out there. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. People are grown ups, and they can say, look, I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. And you can unsubscribe from newsletters, you can do all of that, you can ignore emails. I just wouldn't discourage people from, from doing that. I mean, I don't like LinkedIn spam, right? I don't like it, but whatever, I can ignore it. Um, so I don't really think that that's a huge problem. Others may think differently because they're on the other side, um, but I, I always encourage entrepreneurs to put themselves out there. That said, what you have to think about is what can you give, right? You don't, shouldn't just always take. You can't always say, here, buy for me, do this for me, la la la, everything for me. What you have to do is you have to understand what are you giving others? Like, are you active in industry associations that where you contribute your knowledge? Are you mentoring other entrepreneurs? Are you showing your customers uh, something where they can profit? Because that's actually the best entrepreneurs always find a win-win situation. Mm -hmm. um, they're not in your face in a way that is super obtrusive, but that's super helpful. And if you manage to find that, it's not always easy to find the right way to be helpful. But I've always um, just gained a lot from helping others. It mm -hmm. feels good. Um, and it comes back multifold. Okay. Okay. Um, let's stay with um, the, the pitching process. But this time you're actually standing in front of a potential investor. So when giving a pitch, What's the balance one should have in terms of percentage for the sales bit of the pitch? Additionally, for technical, the team, financial, even legal, you know, patents, etc. What is the mix, the perfect mix and the right amount that is needed for an investor to feel that they, they have enough information for the time being to make an offer? Uh, and what are the common mistakes made by pitchers in this space? I think you have to have all of those factors in there. There's some really good decks out there as examples of companies that have raised money. So I encourage everybody to just go Google uh, pitch decks from companies that have successfully raised. And a lot of companies actually put that out there. We were just talking about how you can be helpful. If mm -hmm. you've raised money and you've gotten great feedback on your, on your pitch, mm -hmm. put it online and say, this is how I did it. Um, but what I find often helpful in um, investor pitches is to have a relatively short deck, and that's that's hard to do. Mm -hmm. Have a really relatively short one with backup slides. And what you want to try to do is get people into a conversation. 
Um, and ideally, before you even get to pitching, you've had conversations with these people or people that they know. So what I do before I even go out for funding is I have conversations with people. I know this is very daunting to somebody that has never done it before and doesn't have those connections, but um, networking is really part of an entrepreneur's job. And even if you are an introvert, this is something that you need to learn how to do. And you have to put yourself out there. Like I said, with the chutzpah, you mm -hmm. have to talk to people and ask them sincerely for their advice and for their help. And that's what I'm doing. I'm in a new field right now with Julie. I haven't done anything in digital health before. So I just go to the people that I know and say, hey, who would be a good person to talk to in this regard? Who could give me some advice here? And then really take that advice mm -hmm. to heart and, um, and you'll get to the next person because one person will introduce you to the next and that person to the next. And if you do that enough, you will find the people that are interested in you and you will find investors that are interested in you. Um, and another thing that I say is you always have to be pitching. Always be pitching. A, B, P. <laughs> um, really, you don't expect to succeed with your first pitch because you have blind spots and you will always miss something that's very obvious to someone that's listening to your pitch. And you're like, oh my God, why did I forget that? So don't do your first pitch in front of the most important audience. Right. I call it battle testing. Figure out what works, what doesn't work. Sort of like a pilot pitch. Yes. A very quick one, if you could answer this one quite briefly. What are you registering or observing when you spot potential? We always hear this from investors. Please break it down for us, Bettina. What is this? What I spot is, are people able to articulate their vision so that you can understand it? Um, are they fully committed? And do they have the right people to support them? Mm -hmm. Sole founders are always harder to support than founding teams. Um, if you are a sole founder, find early employees, find advisors that work, uh, that help you understand it. Um, and that, so that's one of the big things. The other big thing is, is it a large enough market? If you're just addressing a niche, it's not interesting enough. Okay. Okay. That's good. Thank you for um, making it brief. Um, have you ever been burned out? And um, what does that look and feel like? Oh, definitely. Yes. Um, I actually had, I call it sort of my 18 month burnout. Um, I was 10 for 10 years. I was CEO of Pitsability and every 18 months I was like, I can't do this anymore. This mm -hmm. is so hard. Oh my goodness. And what you do at that point is you take a vacation. Yeah. You um, have to find people that 
can do the things that are burning you out and try not to do them anymore, you need to reach out to people that can support you. I've always been part of uh, peer support groups as an entrepreneur, organizations like EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, or in Boston, the High Growth CEO Forum. You have to have somebody's shoulder to cry on, and it can't always be your spouse um, or you know a, a close friend. It sometimes has to be someone that understands the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be honest to yourself and say, well, can I continue? Is this worth my continued investment as a person? The most valuable thing you have is your time and your health. And if those things are not working for you, you don't think that there's, um, you know, there's a way forward. You owe it to yourself mm -hmm. to quit. Mm -hmm. That said, I am, I am such a bad quitter and I just keep on going on. And so I always found a way to get past that and, um, you know, and do that. But after 10 years, I also was, I was tired and it's hard to do it more than a decade. It's really hard. So I really made the choice um, to, to do what my husband wanted, which is go back to his home country and to his hometown. And I left the company I loved so much, the people I loved so much. And I handed over the helm of my baby essentially mm -hmm. to somebody else. And that was difficult, but I knew I had to do it uh, for my family and for myself. So I don't regret doing that. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, I'm sure you've mentored startups now and in the past, and you've just talked about burnout. Um, how do you keep them motivated with non-linear growth curves? We all have the S-curve, yo-yo curves in the growth of our business. The downward trend line is a major demotivator. How does one psychologically get over that and move on? Yeah, I mentioned the entrepreneurial roller coaster earlier. Um, I think it's really important um, to have a solid team and people that are really in it together, that are really pulling in the same direction, have their incentives aligned. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, those ups and downs are a lot easier because not everybody will feel down at the same time. Mm -hmm. You can pull each other up. If one person is down, pull them up. And when you're down, they can pull you up. So that's one thing. The other is really understanding those S-curves. Um, there are these natural places where companies really start to struggle. And um, the first one is when you hit about 15 people. Mm -hmm. um, your old mechanisms don't work anymore. Your organization doesn't work. Um, you have to put in new management structures. You have to do things a little differently than you did before when you could all fit into one mm -hmm. large office. The next one is 50 people. You have to have that next layer of management there. You have to find ways to get junior employees and, and pull them up and train them. The one after that is 150. So, and the next one after that is 500. So every time you really, your growth gets stalled out and uh, everybody's frustrated because 
the, the processes don't work anymore, you're suddenly uh, flatlining on customer growth for a bit. And um, what you have to do as uh, the CEO of the company is explain this mechanism to your team and say, look, we've been here before, or I've been here before, this is what's happening right now, but these are the things that we're doing right now to get back out of that and get back onto the upwards part of the S-curve. Another quick fire question. What percentage do you think that success is about luck? I.e. sometimes there's not a lot you can do about it. Definitely timing and external factors play a big role. Um, but a lot of people say about startups, 1% is inspiration, 99% is transpiration. So there are things that you can do. And uh, what you need to think about is what's happening in the broader industry in the world out there. And how can I use those trends to propel my company forward? Um, if you do that, you can engineer your success. You can pivot into the direction that will make you successful because there are a million different paths you could go on, more than a million, right? Probability, you could go on all of these. And if you carefully change your direction as you get more information, you are engineering your own luck your own success. All right. So, so you're defining luck as I think the old phrase is the opportunity meets preparation. So you're saying pretty much that. Yes, exactly. Um, success and luck comes to those that work hard. Okay. Um, let's talk about your role as one of the lions on the, the business TV show, Hula de Um You've made a few investments and commitments. What have you seen that impressed you uh, with a line of, of potential investees? I always love it when people put themselves out there, have the courage to do that, and they do it so well. Like, I'm always impressed about, you know, somebody that comes from a really small town and has this cute idea, like wooden toys for dogs, and they go on national TV to pitch their idea. Like, how brave is that? I'm not sure I would have had the courage just mm -hmm. starting out. And I love that and I want to encourage it. I really, mm, the reason I love being on Hürde der Löwen is that we can teach people about entrepreneurship and we teach them about that you can do it your, yourself. If it's about like, if that woman can do it, or if that man can yeah. do it, I could probably do it too. And look, they got investment. So I love this encouragement that people get from that. Mm -hmm. and, and I suppose, and also it's, it's a form of pitch training. If they watch that and say, well, what should I do? And what should I not do based on how the, the lions react to whatever this individual proposed? So I, th I, think, I think that's quite entertaining in that sense. Okay, and, and once again, I'm moving on. I wanted to talk more about that, but I'm moving on because I'm conscious of your time. Um, we're going to end on a couple fun questions. Um, I will present a scenario to you and ask what would you do in your capacity as a lion in the Hulid Louvre? So I'm going to pretend to be pitching to you. Um, 
I'm quite looking forward to your answers on these. So let's start. Scenario one, I presented an opportunity to you. My pitch is pretty good. The product definitely is sellable and profitable product. I've given you all the margins, growth data, and it all looks healthy. This is borderline genius, what I'm presenting to you. I want X amount of Swiss francs for a 5% share of the company. You just know in your bones, you know you'll not make a loss with this one. This product is too good and aptly timed for the current market. One snag, you really don't like the picture, the owner or the potential partner. You can't see yourself working with this individual. What do you do? What do you prioritize, Bettina? It's very hard to tell if you can click with somebody on the show, right? Um, that's, it's, it's hard. First impressions sometimes aren't correct. That said, we all as lions have refused deals that seem good, but we didn't like the people where you're like, I can't envision myself working with them. So for me, the answer is pretty clear. I wouldn't do it. Quickly moving on, scenario two. The second and final one. I'm pitching for a buy-in of 10% share, um, X amount of Swiss francs, for a company that is very similar to Julie Health. If all is plausible and attractive, what do you do? What's your instincts tell you to do? Uh, what do you think you'd actually do? To me, the answer is also pretty clear. I would have a conflict of interest. I couldn't invest. Um, what I would probably do during the show is say, look, we can, we can be uh, partners or just sounding boards um, off of each other. I'm always for talking to the competition because, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. So if we, if lots of people do it well, it becomes a respected category, mm -hmm. but there's no way that I could invest. All right. Okay. No, that, that's honest. I appreciate that. That's great. So we, we've got everything. I can't believe it. There we go. I hope to uh, see you then sometime in the new year. Yes, indeed. indeed. Okay. okay. You, you know, um, we barely talked about COVID-19 in this episode of Let's Talk Away. Maybe it's a good omen um, for the end of this pandemic. Bettina Heim, many thanks for your time and insight. Thank you for having me, Elaine. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.